Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello, everybody, and welcome to yet another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. My name is Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy, and here with Managing Editor and who does everything else, Richard Hill. How? Hi, Richard. <laughs> yeah, well, I do one or two things, and that's really fabulous. And uh, again, I'm Matt. Lovely to be here again. Uh, it's been a little while since we've had a show. Uh, we've been busy doing other things, but today... Uh, we managed to get across to the United States once again, and we're going to talk about pain. Yes, Rachel Zoffness, who's um, a, a fabulously well-qualified person. And have you got a, a few details there for her? Uh, yeah, yeah. So Dr. Rachel Zoffness, she's a pain and health psychologist, a mental consultant, author, speaker, and expert on non-pharmacological approaches to pain management. She's an assistant clinical professor at UCFS School of Medicine, where she teaches pain education for medical residents. And I could go on. Um, she's got a lot of credentials to her name. Yeah, no, she's really she's really terrific, really knows her stuff, but um, vibrant and exciting person. I'm really looking forward to talking to her. Yes, yes, I love her passion about this topic. And it just sort of really gives us a lot of confidence as therapists, as psychotherapists and counsellors. Uh, that we really can play a role, we really should play a role in pain management. Look, listeners, I hope you've been enjoying what we've been presenting to you here on the Science of Psychotherapy. And if you're on the email list, the information that goes out there, uh, if you would like to support this show, we would really love for you to become part of our tribe at the Science of Psychotherapy at our academy. And there is a subscription fee there of $99 per year, and you get everything. You get all of our uh, archived material. We've got hundreds of articles, magazines, videos, and uh, Matt, you've been just working so hard curating that into fabulous uh, uh, courses and units of uh, of study mm. uh, that we call our core resources. So we've got yeah. seven or eight core resources, and each of them have dozens of applications. And if you're getting the emails, you'll see that there's then a, a series of curated articles. Uh, this is the time. It is the time for us to know more. Uh, yeah. This is the 21st century therapist, not the one who just uh, trots out uh, what they learned 10 years ago in uh, graduate school. We have to know more because there's more to know. So that's what we're trying to do. So come join us. Yes, absolutely. Well, let's go across to the United States and uh, talk to Dr. Rachel Zoffness. Dr. Rachel Zoffness, thank you so much for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. Great to see you. I am psyched to be here. I like science and I like psychotherapy. <laughs> well, that's that's us. So here's it's Richard here. So very lovely to see you. And uh, and we've been looking forward to this for some time. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Rachel, I'm wondering if you can give our listeners just a little bit of a background um, to start off with. Uh, let us know uh, who you are and where you've come from. Yeah, so I am a pain psychologist, which most people have never heard of before. We all think of pain as this medical thing that you go to a physician to treat. Uh, I currently teach a couple different places. I teach at UCSF in San Francisco. And I also do pain education at Dartmouth-Hitchcock in New Hampshire. Um, I have a private practice. I do a lot of writing as well. And I've written two books on non-pharmacological treatments for pain. Um, one is called the Chronic Pain and Illness Workbook for Teens. And one is the Pain Management Workbook. And both of those are on Amazon, which is very exciting for me because I have imposter syndrome. And all of a sudden, I have these books and they're out in the universe. They're on Amazon. It's pretty amazing. Yes, I'm sorry. There's the pain for you, but uh, but but we have we particularly we were drawn 
to the, uh, to the, the, the pain workbook, but you've also got that one for teens as well. So that's just giving, uh, uh, is, is that just given different language or just uh, more approachable? Is that the way you, you saw it? So the reason that happened is because in a lot of my work, I like to focus on tweens and teens. It's just a preference. I work with older adults and younger kids too, but I find that tweens and teens are often ignored in medicine a lot. And I happen to love that age group probably because I'm like an overgrown teenager. Um, and so I, I realized when I was looking around for resources for my patients that there just weren't any. There's just like not that much for children who are living with pain. And there's millions in the United States and there's like billions around the world. It's pretty wild. Like if you think of the number of chronic illness so I just decided to put one together. Um, so the difference, yes, is that for the teen workbook, the language is a little simpler. It's a little bit shorter. For the adult workbook, which is the pain management workbook, there's just more material. There's a little bit more. There's like more case examples. And there's a little bit more, uh, I would say, harder science. Well, right, yes. right. And we saw some, there's some lovely, there's some lovely stuff in there. I was wandering through and my little science brain was getting uh, uh, quite titillated. It was fabulous. I do love the fact that you've gone to a workbook um, and uh, as you go through, it's, it's, it's terribly practical that you, you get people very engaged. And so the motivation to go to a workbook, not just a, a book on theory. Right. So um, in my mind, I wanted a resource that was for patients of all ages that they could just open up and not just learn and absorb the things, but have sort of like a call and response. So you learn a thing and then how does it apply to you, right? It's different for everyone's pain is different. And then the other, the other thing I thought was really critically important is if you're someone who treats pain, which can be a physician or a nurse or by the way, a psychologist or a social worker or any type of therapist, all of us are actually working with pain and I'm sure we're gonna talk about that. I wanted to make sure there was a guide that healthcare providers could use with patients in an easy format. So any therapist, whether or not you're trained in pain, can pick up a workbook and use it with a patient live in clinical practice. That felt very important to me. Yeah, brilliant. Well, let, let's go back, let's start sort of at the beginning and, and beautifully described in the, the title of your first chapter of of the uh, the adult workbook is pain science 101. Uh, let's just get ourselves onto your page uh, on on what you describe pain and how you do that chapter. Um, so, pain is this complicated, unique thing that's different for every individual. What frustrates me about pain and has always frustrated me about pain is that it's presented to the public and by the way to healthcare providers as this purely biomedical phenomenon. And by that, I mean, when you have pain, and this goes for me too, you normally and naturally think you should go to the physician, right? In Western medicine, we have this uh, bizarre divide. Either you have physical pain and you go see a physician or you have emotional pain and you see someone like me, a psychologist or a therapist, right? But by the way, neuroscience tells us that isn't how pain works at all. So I really love neuroscience. I was a brain and behavior major and I just, that's really, it's how the world makes the most sense to me is by studying science and neuroscience. So what we've learned about pain is that it is not a purely biomedical process, never. Pain is never just about the body. So one thing that happens with pain a lot of the time is when you have pain, it's very easy to believe that your pain lives exclusively in the body part that hurts, right? So if your leg is hurting, it's very easy to believe that your pain lives exclusively in your leg, but what neuroscience has told us is that that is actually not at all true. And one of the reasons we know that 
is because of this thing called phantom limb pain. And some people listening may have heard of phantom limb pain. Phantom limb pain is this phenomenon where, you know, an accident survivor or a trauma victim loses a limb and they continue to have terrible pain in the missing body part. Terrible pain in the missing body part. So if pain lived exclusively in the body, in your leg, for example, no leg should literally mean no pain. And the fact that you can continue to have terrible pain in a body part that's no longer there tells us that pain is constructed somewhere else and that somewhere else is your brain. Of course, your brain is always working in concert with your body. So I don't want to pretend it's exclusively this neurological thing. But the reason that's so important, especially for therapists and psychologists, is because it tells us that there are things we can do as healthcare providers to help people living with pain. And it tells us that this divide between physical and emotional is not accurate because neuroscience tells us there's lots of parts of the brain that process pain. And one of the primary brain centers that processes pain is your limbic system, which is the brain's emotion center. So it's not that pain is either physical or emotional. That's not a thing, never. Pain is always both physical and emotional. There's a lot more things we could say about pain, but I think that's a really good place to start. Yeah, no, it's, it's really important. I mean, we, we spend our whole time banging the drum of, of complex systems and thinking thinking of us as a complex system. And and, you know, bringing up that wonderful work of Ramachandran, uh, uh, his book, I think it was out in the 90s. It's still a great read. And uh, I've used the, the mirror box type of process that, that he uses in some uh, very interesting things. And one was someone who had a very painful leg from an injury who kept saying that leg and that thing. So we also used that and eventually we did the process. Couldn't reduce the pain. Uh, per se, or the the couldn't increase the activity of the leg, but she was began she began to start talking about my leg and my stuff. So there's a lot of mental activity that goes about owning things, about dissociation, uh, about excessive connection, and a term that you use in here, which I I really love, is is you know pain. Well, they amplifies. You talk about turning the volume up and down. What's the the story there? Um, I try very hard not to make false promises. Like I, I may have said, I'm, I'm a science nerd and being a science nerd means that it's important not to make things up. So what I would like to say to all of my patients is I can make your pain go away. But that, and while that is true for some of my patients, that is frequently not true. I can't magically make pain disappear. I don't think that's a magic trick any of us can perform. So the way I really like to talk about it, like you said, is this volume metaphor where what one, what I can do for you is help you turn the volume of your pain down. So I can explain how that works. There's a metaphor that I really like to use for how pain works. Would it be okay if I... Oh, please do. Please got do. Got nerdy. Okay. So this is... It's nerdy. However, I think part of what I love about pain science is that it isn't beyond anybody. Um, we think it is a very complicated thing, but everybody, and I mean, everybody deserves to understand your pain and it is absolutely understandable. So, um, if you imagine that in your central nervous system, you have a pain dial, it's much like the volume knob on your car stereo. You can turn it up and turn it down. I'm going to call that the, the pain dial. So your pain volume. So there's a lot of things that turn pain volume up. And if you ask your patients to tell you some things that turn pain volume up, I bet you they can tell you. And there's similarly a number of things or factors that turn pain volume down. So there's a whole host of factors, but there's three in particular I really like to talk about. One is stress and anxiety always changes pain volume. Two is mood and emotions 
always changes pain volume. And three is attention or what you're focusing on. And I'm going to explain how that works. So when stress and anxiety are high, for example, during a pandemic, and your body and your muscles are tense and tight and your thoughts are worried, your brain sends a message to your pain dial, turning up or amplifying pain volume. So whatever pain you had before, when stress or anxiety are high, your pain's going to feel worse. The same is true with mood and negative emotions. So science tells us that emotions are always impacting the physical pain we feel. So when your mood is low, emotions are negative, you're miserable, you're depressed, you're angry, you're frustrated, which ironically happens a lot with chronic pain, your limbic system sends a message to the pain dial, turning pain volume up. Whatever pain you had before, when your emotions are negative, pain's going to feel worse. And the third is attentional processes. So When you are focused on your pain, you're staying home from work, you're in bed, you're missing out on life and social activity, your prefrontal cortex sends a message to your pain dial, amplifying pain volume. But the reason this is good news for all of us, especially for people living with pain, is that the opposite is also true. So when stress and anxiety are low and your body and your muscles are relaxed and your thoughts are calm, both brain and body all of the time, your pain volume is turned down. Your brain sends a message to your pain dial, lowering pain volume. The same is true with emotions. So when emotions are positive, you're happy, you are grateful, you're engaging in gratitude, your mood is high, emotions are positive, pain volume is turned down. And again, with attentional processes, so when you are distracted, you're out and about in the world, you're spending time with friends, you're engaged in pleasurable activities. I usually ask my patients, tell me a time you were so absorbed in some activity, you briefly forgot about your pain, right? That's not a miracle. That's actually your pain dial, your pain volume in action, because your prefrontal cortex also regulates the pain you feel. So I really like that metaphor of things that we can do as providers and also people living with pain to change pain volume. Because at the end of the day, pain takes away power. That's just what it does. Takes away your ability to live your life the way you want, your ability to play sports and engage in activities, sometimes your ability to, you know, have normal relationships or a normal social life. So I think what we're doing when we explain this to patients is we're giving them their power back. We're saying there's all these things you can do to change pain volume. Yeah, that is so brilliant. And, uh, and of course, there's so many concrete things then that we can do. And um, re-empowering our clients is, uh, is so important because I, you know, in my own experience with clients, you know, we, they feel that they're such a victim and unable to do anything about this pain. And the message that you're saying is that, well, there's a lot of hope actually. And actually, there's a lot of control. Brilliant. Exactly right. That's ex- that's exactly what I want to do. I feel like step one, in addition to what Richard was saying about, you know, how do you make friends with the part of your body that's causing so much misery and pain is, you know, how do we give people agency and control back? That's such yeah. an important factor. Yeah, brilliant. I think one of the, the for me, the, the tricky things with pain, it's really our, our uh, well, the whole system, the psychoneurobiology, immunology, it's function, it basically the, the principal mechanism that the body uses to say, pay attention, something's wrong, something needs to be um, done here. And so obviously if your pain, particularly if you have the pain dial, so you're actually increasing it beyond its, its, its need or intention, you're going to, uh, that's going to be distracting because uh, of, that, of that process. But these, these distractions and these change, these dissociations, I'm just hearing a lot of psychology 
I'm hearing a lot of like, you know, a client who's coming in saying, I'm constantly distracted. I can't, I can't focus on this, this sort of, uh, this sort of process. This is some, this is, this is about pain. I'm, uh, well, anyway, I, actually I'm just musing, but what are you, what are you saying? Cause you mentioned this earlier, the, the psychologist in pain, the psychology of pain. Yeah, right. This goes back to the thing where we all think of pain as a biomedical problem. Like your back hurts, you go to the back doctor, you get medication, or maybe you go for back surgery. And back surgeries for pain, just to say, are not particularly effective. There's this new classification, by the way, it's called failed back surgery syndrome. That's like a new diagnosis, just to tell you. And in my mind, one of the things we're doing wrong is we're only focusing on this biomedical aspect of pain when, in fact, we know that pain is a biopsychosocial phenomenon. And I know that's like this big, scary word, but literally what it means is there's biomedical components of pain. Of course, that's true, like tissue damage and system dysfunction, sleep and nutrition and inflammation, all these things, of course. But then there's the psychological domain of health and not just pain, but all health. And what's in the psychological domain of pain is your thoughts about pain, your your thoughts in general, your emotions. Are you anxious and depressed? You know, are you, do you, are you living with trauma? And then you're, there's coping behaviors. So how are you dealing with your pain? So the way you deal with your pain changes the pain you feel also. So if you're staying in bed, week after week, month after month, you're not moving your body, you're not seeing friends, we know that pain's gonna amplify. And the opposite's also true. The more you engage in your life, the more social you are. And that bleeds into this other domain of pain. We've got bio, we've got psych, we've got social. The sociological or social domain of pain is also really huge. All these studies show that isolation, for example, during a pandemic is actually really bad for pain because humans are a social animal. In the presence of others, our brains release a whole host of chemicals. Dopamine, which is like the reward chemical, serotonin, which raises your mood, which of course turns down pain volume, and this other brain chemical called endorphins. Endorphins are quite literally your brain's natural painkillers. Those are what opioids, those are the receptors that opioids work on. So in the presence of other people, these brain chemicals go up. And in the absence of other people, these brain chemicals crash. So if we're only focusing on one domain of pain, we're missing two-thirds of the pain problem. Um, But back to your question, yes, there is this very important component of pain that's psychosocial. So if we're just sending our patients to physicians, we're not adequately treating their pain. And there's a lot of things we can do as psychologists and therapists to help people living with pain, like a ton of things. Yeah. I, I've got a client at the moment who uh, uh, got a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff, but she talks uh, about as, as pain. So she uses it as a, as a generic over, overview, which is a bit difficult, I'm, I'm finding, because she'll say, oh, but I was in such pain, I couldn't say this. I was in such pain, I couldn't do that. And on each one of them, I'm going, oh, no, that's that's a current anxiety you're feeling there. And then on the next one, oh, no, that's a past, uh, a past traumatic um, memory coming up. Yet she uses the same term all the way through. Um, was I guess if you flip that, uh, you're in a psychology with your psychologist or psychotherapist, and the client's saying, I have anxiety or I have PTSD, they will have most likely some kind of pain component in their experience. Is that something that you, you're talking about there? Totally. And I just want to say something that you're touching on actually is there's a lot of stigma around 
living with chronic pain, there's also a lot of stigma around going to a psychologist for pain. Like nobody, and I mean nobody, wants to see a psychologist for pain. The thing I hear the most is, no, but my pain is real. My pain is organic. You know, my pain is from surgery or from diabetes or fibromyalgia. Like my pain is real. You're, you know, my doctor is saying it's all in my head by sending me to you, or they're saying it's just emotional or, and, and that's not what we're saying. Pain is biopsychosocial, right? So to adequately treat pain, we have to treat the whole person and the whole picture, but there's so much stigma around psychology for pain that I am the last stop on the train, really. Like the patients I see have been on 40 medications. They've seen 15 physicians. Oftentimes they've had multiple surgeries and their pain has not changed. So I think it's it's a really interesting problem. And moreover, I don't have to tell you guys this or anybody listening, most psychologists and therapists are not trained in pain. Like how many psychology training programs have a mandatory pain training. I didn't have one. I went down the rabbit hole as a postdoc because I thought it was so fascinating. And I studied it as an undergrad because I was a nerd and studying brain and behavior. And I thought pain was this fascinating overlap between physical and emotional, but most of us don't have training in pain. So even if I'm sitting here, you know, telling everyone that it's so important for us as psychologists and therapists to treat not only anxiety and depression, but pain also, you know, most people say to me, that's great, but don't send me your patients because I'm not trained in pain. Um, I think the important thing to know is if you Google cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT for pain, for chronic pain, you will find a host of resources. There's also ACT for pain. There's a bunch of workbooks out there. There's mindfulness-based stress reduction or MBSR for pain. So for psychologists or therapists, there are a ton of things. There are a ton of things that we can do for pain. Right. And um, just on that topic, you know, when, when it comes to physicians, it does seem like this has been siloed into their silo. What, what is it going to take for physicians to be referring their patients to psychologists for pain management? What a good question. In my mind, it's a combination of things first thing is education. So this paper came out, uh, it was by Shipton and it was like 2019, I think. And they did a survey of all the medical schools in the United States and Canada. I think it was international, but the the statistics that stands out to me the most is that they found that 96% of medical schools in the United States and Canada have zero dedicated compulsory pain education. Zero. And that is like a very compelling statistic to me. So there is some training in pain for some physicians, but most physicians will say to me, you know, no, I really haven't had training in pain. And the training that I had was purely procedural or, you know, about medication. So first we need to change the way we're teaching our healthcare providers. And again, psychologists, we don't get much education in pain, nor do nurses, nor do social workers. So healthcare providers need to be trained in pain if we're going to change the way we're treating pain. Um, I think part two is for the, the public and people living with pain to understand their pain better so that everyone can clamor for more appropriate multidisciplinary care. Pain management is siloed. It's it's usually this like biomedical thing, but we all need to be collaborating on a multidisciplinary team if we actually want to help our patients. So we need to get more social workers, more nurses, more psychologists involved in just like your general pain management plan. Um, another main issue in pain I know you guys know this too, is money. So medicine and healthcare boils down to money most of the time and insurance companies often do not reimburse 
non-pharmacological treatments for pain. So surgeries are reimbursed, medications are reimbursed, but cognitive behavioral therapy, no reimbursement. So what are you going to say to a patient? You know, a lot of the patients that I see have been through the ringer. They're in medical debt. They've seen like 100,000 doctors. They've tried all the things. And so, so, I mean, there's like the system is really broken. And I think the number one thing to do is do what you guys are doing and spread the word and talk about it. Yeah. Yes. yeah, it's moved moved out from that social to into sociopolitical now. You're talking, which is which is absolutely the case. Yeah. So it does sound like a good a good start down this track for therapists and psychotherapists who are most of our listenership is to um, get hold of your workbook. I mean, it makes a great template uh, for working with clients, as you know, as well as giving it to the client as a workbook for themselves. I yeah. appreciate the vote of confidence. <laughs> oh, no, it's great. I mean, I'm just thinking back. I mean, one of my, uh, uh, my, my history goes back very quickly to Milton Erickson, the great psychologist, Ernest Ross. He's been my mentor. So, uh, but, but Erickson, of course, who uh, in the latter part of his life had this terrible uh, post-polio recurrence. And there's a wonderful story that Ernie uh, Rossi wrote about where Erickson would wake up in the middle of the night with this terrible stabbing pain in uh, a, a particular area, his shoulder particularly. But he would utilise his various methods of, of, of personal engagement and psychotherapy and he would change the pain, uh, which was quite interesting. He, he, he'd been around a long time and had skills. He would change into an elongated pain and... And I remember Ernie admitted saying, well, you've still got the pain. And, and Erickson was one to scold. He would say, of course, I've still got the pain. I've got post-polio syndrome, for goodness sake. But it's different and I can manage it. Right. And this is, uh, and I, uh, uh, people got can't it. see, we're watching it now. You just put your finger up and went, yeah. You got it. Yeah. So this is, this is really what you're talking about, this um this shift of, of, of various areas and going in, and I look at well, a, a chapter that grabs my attention because my wife is a, a, a lifestyle medicine. Uh, she's just become a fellow of the, uh, of the Lifestyle Medi- Medicine Institute here now. And this is in a terribly important part uh, of how we are affected. So we have our emotions, we have the psychology, and you mentioned the earlier sleep. Can you go a little bit more into this lifestyle idea? Totally. When I think about lifestyle, I think about everyday behavioral decisions that we all make, right? And when you're living with pain, a lot of the decisions sometimes are taken away from you. So a lot of people that I see who are living with pain, or even people I know who are living with pain, are doing things like you can't sleep at night because the pain keeps you up. So then you crash out in the middle of the day and you take a three-hour nap, but then you're not going to bed till four in the morning. Um, There's a lot of research that shows that brains, human brains in general, really like home homeostasis. By that, I mean human brains really do well with balance, right? So regular routines, whatever the regular routine is, a regular sleep time, a regular wake time, eating three times a day, you know, getting movement. So it's like not too little and not too much of all of the things. So homeostasis is really important to think about when we're thinking about lifestyle medicine when it comes to pain. So we actually don't want to be sleeping three hours in the middle of the day as much as possible. We want to have really good sleep hygiene. So I didn't know what that meant. I, there's, so there's like a whole handout, whole section of that in the book, right? But part of that is establish a sleep time, establish awake time, try really hard not to nap for three hours in the middle of the day because it's going to disrupt homeostasis. But it's also nutrition, right? We can't talk about 
pain and health in the human body if you're not talking about the fuel that you're putting into your body. So what happens with pain, emotional and physical, is that we often self-soothe with food. That's a very easy thing to do. And when it comes to self-soothing with food, it's very rare that people are self-soothing with broccoli. That's just not a thing. So it's usually like potato chips and ice cream and, you know, alcohol. And so there's a lot of, obviously, what you put into your body is what what you're going to get out of your body. And um, chronic pain does not do very well with a diet of chips and ice cream and booze, you know, as tempting as that might be. So thinking about nutrition, thinking about sleep, and then something that we always think about in pain medicine also is movement, which I try very hard never to call exercise, believe it or not, because that word to someone living with daily pain is like, I can't even walk. You're telling me to go exercise. It sounds like you're asking someone to run a marathon. So I just like to talk about it as movement. Like what movement gives you joy? If it's having a dance party in your living room, let's find a way to make that happen. Just moving your body. Motion is lotion. Like all these things that physical therapists will tell us. Physical therapists are very smart. Um, You know, your body needs to stay strong to fight pain. Your muscles need to be in use. Your joints need to be lubricated. All the things that happen can only happen if you're moving right? So there's, there's movement, there's nutrition, there's sleep. There's all these things that we think about when we're thinking about lifestyle medicine. And most of those are decisions that you're making on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. I, I, I love it. I, I have a, a, a disease which affects me on a, on a, on a, a yearly basis called, we call it Christmas pudding shoulder. Uh, <laughs> but it's basically just sugar. Um, and we're smart enough to know that, but I'm quite sure that uh, uh, I would, if I were less educated and less aware of things, be going, uh, I would say, oh, this is bursitis. You know, I'm, I'm off to the doctor to get some um, uh, covering up medicine and stuff. And it really was just a lifestyle thing, you know. And so I don't, now I'm getting older, I don't eat so much Christmas pudding. So, uh, and, and I, don't get the, I don't get the shoulder. So it's really, it's really fundamental about, um, uh, and if I do that to a healthy shoulder, what would adding some of those lifestyle um, negatives, lifestyle behaviors do to something that is already uh, at, a, at, a, at a point? Very true. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Well, you know, and I'm, I'm just writing down um, a whole lot of points here when I, when I have a client in front of me and we're dealing with pain and we're going to address stress, mood, attention, food, sleep, movement, general lifestyle. There is just so much to talk about. There's so much to talk about. I know. And one other thing I like to throw in lifestyle, which I feel like is ignored and sounds really floofy, is sunlight and nature. And I know that sounds ridiculous. It makes me sound, but but one of the reasons, I think we forget about this when we talk about medicine, honestly, like humans are diurnal. We, we literally, we're diurnal because we need the sun. That yeah. is why we're diurnal. <laughs> and when people have chronic pain, they're stuck inside. They don't go out. They don't sunlight raises your body's serotonin, right? Which again, changes mood to change pain. So all the things are connected. Everything is connected. And and actually people will say that nature is one of the most, if you ask what's the most soothing thing for you, people will say being out in nature. And again, when you turn off the body's sympathetic nervous system, what you're actually doing is lowering pain volume. So just like all the things, like you said, there's so many things we can do and all the things are connected. Like pain lives at the middle of the biopsychosocial picture. So no matter what thing you're targeting, you end up targeting pain. Yeah. 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 Vitamin D, we can hear there. Yeah. But it it is a fascinating thing what what we we get to because this this is the – the, the sort of social, politico, educational um, and experiential type of aspect 
is that we've spent the vast majority of our evolutionary history in nature. And Mm. when people say, oh, nature's really good for you, it's kind of like, duh. Um, But we do have to be reminded because it's not so much that people don't think, but it's like, I haven't got time. I've got to go to the office. I need to get the thing. Uh, Totally. And so and so on and so on and so forth. Um, yep. Yeah. Just remember, remember where we came from, and we didn't come from a city. Uh, yeah. 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 Exactly right. Uh, well, Rachel, we're coming sort of to the end of our time here. Uh, is there any sort of final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? Yes, my final thought is this: um, therapists think that they don't treat pain. We are all treating pain all of the time. So any of your patients who have anxiety, they're going to often have body pain or stomach aches or migraine or headaches. It's 100% all of the time related to their stress and anxiety levels. They're never disconnected. The brain and body are connected 100% of the time. If you're seeing patients with depression, emotions aren't just in the head. They also come out in the body. People living with depression, of course, their bodies are suffering also. Same thing with therapists who are treating trauma. Of course, if you've ever read the book, The Body Keeps the Score, which I highly recommend, we all know that trauma also lives in the body and is related to pain. So every therapist, every single therapist, psychologist, we are all treating pain. It seems like rocket science, but it's really not. It's it's straightforward. There's a lot of things that you can deliver to your patients. So my my um, request, my I implore everybody to at least think about integrating this pain work into your practice because it's totally doable, and your patients will be better for it. And and I just uh, we've had a look at your book and. Uh, I would perhaps using that rocket science thing. Let me say your book is rocket science with training wheels. So everybody get in and, and get on it because it takes you through thoughtfully, but then practically, uh, but also sometimes extremely gently through some things that are that are quite um, that are quite complicated. And I a couple of times I just got I thought, oh wow, that's a really complicated thing. That was easy. So, uh, you know, so much uh, congratulations on, on what you've done. And I imagine that the teen, I can only imagine, I'll, I'll have to get the teenage book now because I've got a teenager in me somewhere. <laughs> Brilliant. Dr. Rachel Zoftis, thank you so much for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy. And thank you for writing the book. It was brilliant to have you on the show. Thank you guys for the work you're doing. Bye for now. Well, we promised you a bright and enthusiastic, intelligent and uh, passionate uh, uh, person. And boom, there she was. What, 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 a, what a fabulous thing. Yeah. It's just very exciting to, to watch someone who takes knowledge mm. and then makes something practically usable and functional that helps us move forward as therapists. And uh, yeah. she's definitely on my list of, uh, uh, of, this, of this type of person. I really enjoyed that talk. Yeah, absolutely. And I love workbooks because, you know, you can take a workbook and you can make it your own in terms of, you know, developing uh, a process and approach, you know, with clients. And certainly this, she's done all the hard work and she, she knows what she's talking about. And we're all working with pain. So definitely pick up this workbook. Uh, It'll make a great template for you guys. Richard, it's been a pleasure as always. Let me just mention once again, if you appreciate what we're doing here on the Science of Psychotherapy, please do become part of the tribe, become a subscriber to the Science of Psychotherapy. We'll give you a huge library of material to help you become a better therapist in the 21st century. 
And uh, from, I can't say anything better than that, Matt. So uh, <laughs> everybody join us. And uh, from me, it's bye for now. Yeah, thanks for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, go to thescienceofpsychotherapy.com.